Unconscious Bias Project. <laughs>
Yes, it was always so fun. So, you know, these trainings are like incredibly stressful. I always tell people it feels a little bit like performance, right? You're kind of on stage. Sometimes it's actually there's a spotlight on you. And then and then after a little bit of time, like the show's over. So I always felt like Alexis would always be at like the backstage door, right? Being like real talk, like show's over, Liza, real talk. Like what's going on? So um, and of course, for Alexis, I got to meet Lynette and we did some work a little bit earlier in the summer together. Um, and so, yeah, and I'll say, Alexis, I think you, you described yourself just now as like, I used to be a teacher, um, but I think it could never leaves us, right? Like teaching just becomes part of what we do as opposed to just who we are and the title we have. So um, I'm just so grateful that for the two of you through the Unconscious Bias Project, you're continuing to do great education. Yes, so exciting. yes, it's true. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> so happy with it. With that, Liza. Can you tell us what your consultancy is about? Sure. So I can do this in a couple of ways. I can do it in the very academic way that gets me some cred. Or I can talk to you like how I tell my mom and dad who still kind of know that they have no idea what I do. Um, So let me kind of get at you both ways, right? So I, my mom and dad think I'm a teacher (laughs) that I like go around to schools and organizations and companies. And I like teach people about diversity. That's about as far as it goes. Um, Every once in a while, they see my face on a poster and they're like, look, there she is. She does things. So that's just kind of the elevator speech. Like I teach about diversity, but on a much deeper level, I really help organizations and individuals, administrative teams, leadership teams, really examine the strategy behind diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, which are four different things. I'm throwing a little bit of shade to all the places that say they do DEI work, DEI, DEI. Um, And I'm always like, yeah, those are different. So uh, I help organizations, companies, and individuals and teams really look at each aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Folded in there are things like anti-racism. And um, I get to just kind of help them better understand how to be more strategic and how to be more engaged in it. I do that with schools, which is how Alexis and I met as well. So going to different schools and organizations, some of that work is with folks like boards of trustees. Um, Some of it's with administrators. I met Alexis with faculty and staff, and I actually do a lot of work with young people. So I've worked um, as young as pre-KK all the way up to grade 12. And then now I teach in a doctoral program and a master's program at the local university here doing similar type of work throughout the semester. So engaging in um, anti-racist leadership and educational leadership skills. So that's kind of the consultancy part. And then I do a lot of coaching, kind of this one-on-one stuff. I always describe my coaching as an opportunity for people to ask the questions that they wouldn't dare ask in public, right? Because you know these folks, like people who know better than to ask particular questions in public, but they still think them, right? So I offer this one-on-one. I'm like, listen, it's just us. There's no Zoom. There's no recording. Let's just talk about like, what is it that you want to know? So that's the coaching part, this kind of one-on-one situation. Um, I travel all over the country. I'm able to Zoom internationally, which is exciting. And now that the world is starting to open up a little bit again, I'm starting to be back in person in different schools. So that's kind of the summary, I would say, what LT coaching and consulting is all about. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Holy um, shit. Wait, hold on. Hold on. 
I'm just like, I feel like I just got run over by an 18 wheeler. Like, what do you mean? How do you possibly run? So, so like, oh my gosh, like, well, one super cool, like, you know, from a group that's like just starting in consultancy, seeing what you've built over the years and like the incredible depth and breadth of your experience summarized in like a couple of minutes (laughs) was just like, I mean, I've read your bio. I've listened to you talk on podcasts. I've listened to you on YouTube videos. And I just like, we like it. I think we just barely skimmed like the little, little, I don't like, I, I don't know the, even though it should be the tip of the iceberg, I think what I'm actually talking about is, you know, when you're boiling like a huge thing of milk and you have that netilla, the like the, um, like the, the little fat, like pellicle forming on the top. You like just get like, oh, that delicious stuff right at the top. And then you're like, oh, holy, holy crap. Liza has like a whole, you know, other like three gallons worth of good stuff underneath. And I'm just like, wow, how do you possibly manage all those things all at once? And also like, we have to talk shop at some point because yes. I want to hear all about it. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I like this. You, you, you can go <laughs> back, so awesome. go back <laughs> on your train. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I was going to say, I do think it's so funny the difference between like what you were saying that your parents think you do, and what you actually do. Because I feel like there's that that um, tension a lot where we'll be talking with potential clients, and or we'll read um, post workshop feedback. And a lot of times folks are like, well, we wanted more terms, we wanted to know more words. And it's so important what you said later in your explanation, which was about that engagement, was about that thinking about it strategically. And it's like, that is so much more important than any specific words. Google exists. Hey, Google exists. <laughs> and actually, that's a great place for me to just kind of build on because oftentimes people will ask me, and I'm sure you get this too, given your consultancy for the two of you, they'll say, hey, Liza, we, we really want you to come to our organization and just tell us all the things that we're not supposed to say. And I'm like, sweet, this is going to be like a year long gig. <laughs> and you know what I'm going to say, you know what is going to happen. And I'm like, great, how long do I have? They're like 45 minutes. Would that be enough? I'm like, let me let me run that to you again. 45 minutes to cover all the things you shouldn't say. Like, <gasps> no. <laughs> so I love that. I often say this too. I'm like, A, Google it, right? You literally could Google this wall that uh-huh. that amazing leche is boiling, like whatever you want to do, you could just Google it. So uh, what? I, how I tend to describe my consultancy is that I don't tend to teach people about their biases. I create pathways for them to discover them themselves. So it's like teaching versus pathways, right? Yeah. Mm. And so it doesn't make sense for me to teach you all the things you shouldn't say. I give you these pathways and protocols to ask yourself, A, why do I want to say them? I think we can think of a couple words that fit that bill. And B, what is my relationship to that word? What is my relationship to the community that most might be most impacted by that word? And that's really different from tell me what to say, what not to say, right? Like it means I actually have to do a little bit of work every time I'm confronted with a situation. And so that's what I tend to do with people, particularly, and I know you do it too, right? Around unconscious bias or diversity, equity, inclusion, justice. Um, I want to give people the opportunity to use these tools in any situation. 
Because I always tell folks, I can run you through 25 case studies, and it's going to be the 26th one that we don't cover that trips you up, right? You can only prepare for so many scenarios. So I want to give you the tools to take to every single one of those scenarios. Um, And so that's really why I started the consultancy in terms of consultancy and coaching, because, you know, in my previous life, I was doing a lot of just training and I was doing a lot of the here's what to say, here's what's not to say. And it just wasn't effective, right? When I would check in with schools and organizations, I would ask them kind of follow-up questions like, hey, so did our workshop change, would our workshop change your culture? And they're like, no. (laughs) And then I pretend to be so surprised that it didn't change it. So that's when I was like, all right, we need to take an entirely different strategic approach to this. What are the tools that I can give people even when we're not in the workshop that they can continue to work together? And I think that's the coaching piece. I also work with organizations to coach each other. So if I'm working with a faculty, staff, or strategic team, or even like a partnership like yours, right, where you two work so closely with each other, I I have a lot of clients who are partners in business. And we go over the different tools that when they come up against conflict or discourse, that we can engage in it productively and think through the lens of identity. Um, so that's really like why I do the work the way that I do it. Lynette and I just did recently a workshop where part of the workshop was on how to apologize. Yeah. Because it's way easier <laughs> to learn how to apologize when you step in it than it yeah. is to learn a litany, a glossary of things that you can or can't say is just learn how to apologize, especially because all of these things are always updating. How many pieces were there a few years ago about how BIPOC, right? BIPOC was the next evolution of the word. And now you can find pieces that are like, "Mm, maybe it's time to ditch this. Like, and, you know, I'd hang out with the queer students and like in the queer students club at my school. And they'd be like, oh yeah, this term, that term, this, the other term. And I'd be like, I'm supposed to be the educated one. I'm supposed to be the experienced elder. And I have no idea what y'all are talking about. Nothing. No idea. I was finger snapping through every single thing you said. I think uh, UVP has a very, very similar approach. Um, and we, we saw the same thing. We started out, you know, just giving like talks and keynotes and people are like, oh, yeah, that was a really good actionable thing. And then we're like, you know what? People need something deeper. And we started, you know, running, we're doing assessments, running impact, you know, looking at all these things in the long term. I think like for me, the like aha sweet spot is like, yeah, you know, one of our our clients had I'd either written, maybe this was in a, a survey or in, a, in an informational interview, but they were like, you know, we started having these conversations at work about all this stuff. And we hadn't talked about that before. Like the the workshop actually helped us start to talk about this stuff. And it was like, okay, this is good. Like that's good. (laughs) That that's Mm -hmm. something that's something that that we can say, like, hey, that happened. And um, and yeah, I I love uh, you know, we similarly offer like consultations and coaching. We just recently, I think uh in the last six, six months, Alexis, I feel like we added consultations and coaching because we found like our clients being like, hey, you know, do you have another 15 minutes like after the workshop? And I had this thing and I was wondering about blah, blah, blah. And how do you apply? And um, and yeah, because because people want to be able to to talk with an expert and, you know, yes, Google it. But also if you've ever tried to Google almost anything about 
social justice, you know, just like equity. There is like 50 billion different people's opinions out there. And I've seen like a gamut of training and like free resources and like different things out there, even just talking to other people in the space. And there's everybody from like, this is a list I saw in BuzzFeed about how not to appropriate culture. And that's literally part of the training to like, I'm not successful in my training if I don't make the whole audience cry to like something like the white fragility book where it's like guilt, 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 guilt. And the other is still an other and they're one dimensional people that are, it's just like, whoa. So that, you know, having somebody that cares, especially you with let's such like depth of research and experience in in all of these different facets is really special, right? Like getting, you know, if you have like a dental problem, you talk with a dentist, right? You're just like, you're not (laughs) Not someone who just has teeth, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm going to go ask that one black person in my company, what do I do about the situation with, you know, somebody, you know, whatever. And it's just like, yeah, you don't, you go to the expert and that's kind of the whole point. I think like we're at this stage now, you know, we're, so we're recording September, 2021. And um, last year was like the fervor of like, oh my gosh, I got to do something. I got to, you know, Black Lives Matter. Okay. Uh, uh, stop API hate. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, like, okay, we're, we're hired a diversity person. Okay. Okay. Now we're good. Right. And we did some training. Okay. We're done. So exactly like you said, Alexis and Liza, you know, it's an ever evolving dynamic thing because people are dynamic, right? Like history is being written every day. Like we're, you know, things are are actively changing and especially with the advent of the internet, you know, like it's just like conversations are moving breakneck speeds, you know, like I think like, you know, uh, what is it like a year ago or two years ago um, in the Latinx community? People were like, okay, no, you have to call yourself white if you look white. And people were like, well, no, my, my experience isn't white. Like, how, how do I even call that? And then there is the, you know, non, non-U.S. Uh, Central American uh, folks saying, why, why are we defining ourselves by, by Latin, period? Like Latinx, Latina, Latin at, or whatever. And, um, and now there's like, okay, now there's a distinction between white presenting and white passing and white passing is like insidiously intentional. Um, and like all this stuff, like, whoa, I, I like, I missed that thread or like, uh, the Latinx community is even like some people are moving away from Latinx to Latine and some people are even moving away from all of that entirely to say, you know, I'm like an indigenous ancestry person of color to like bring, you know, the kind of a little bit of what we talked about at the, at the event. Um, so uh, UEP listeners who are avid, uh, <laughs> avid readers of our newsletters will know that Liza uh, was our, uh, one of our awesome guests on uh, Stop API Hate and Activate. And um, some of the some of the stuff that we talked about there, um, both Liza and with uh, Rohan and Viv Tran, was about the idea of dividing, right? Of like separating everybody out. Of like you know diversity 
in thinking about like, okay, everybody's really different and, you know, we don't have the same struggles or we, we can't unite against, um, you know, systemic issues or, you know, there's, there's never been a history of, you know, black and Asian communities ever coming together. This is unprecedented, you know, whatever, like that rhetoric, the, the history, the dynamicness of it, like you need to always be researching and learning and talking with experts and, and, you know, it's a, it's like, like a constant and very dynamic thing. And it's not something that you can, you know, create one training. And yes, I am sh- throwing shade here too. <laughs> you can just like create <laughs> one training and then mass produce it for like, you know, 50,000 people and call it done. It's just not going to fit everybody. Yeah, that's so true. And so this, there's like three things that I was jotting down as you were talking. Again, I was not finger snapping because I was like busy taking notes <laughs> on everything that you were saying. As you were mentioning, Lynette, the different ways in which people change and the method changes and the strategy changes. Like I'll admit, I mean, I'm like 25 years into my career doing this work. And I will openly admit that in the early years, maybe years one through 10, I was definitely buying into the whole, unless you're crying, you haven't gone deep enough, right? Like in order to like learn diversity, you have to be in pain, right? I absolutely early in my career, like perpetuated that, bought into it. I think it was also just the ethos of what diversity training was looking like. So I definitely did that. Um, Of course, (laughs) as we changed and understood, and I will acknowledge that a lot of that pain was the taxation of people of color or other marginalized groups to put pain on display for the benefit of white people, right? For white learning or cisgender learning, right? Kind of fill in that um, privileged identity category. And so at that point, I was just like, oh, yeah, no. (laughs) Like, I am not doing like pain drama for learning. And so I think there's a lot of folks who are really resistant to coming to these types of diversity trainings or whatever you call it, equity, inclusion, justice, because they have experienced the kind of pain on display or they're made to feel, as you were mentioning, like really guilty about the work. I do think there's space for that. I don't think it just has to be public, though. So I'll admit I've read my uh, kind of assignment for myself. Um, realizing that so much of my education has systematically left out indigenous and native voices. I was like, all right, I'm going to buy like all the books that are recommended by native and indigenous authors and scholars, and I'm going to read them. And I will openly admit there were times in my own room while I was reading where I was moved to tears. Some of that was guilt, although I'm not even, you know, I'm my family's immigrant to this country. And feeling all those things, right? A substitute pain, guilt, fear, sadness, anger, frustration. And I needed to do that for myself, right? It was a process I needed for myself. But I do think there's a lot of trainers and facilitators who force that kind of pain in public. And that's just not what I subscribe to anymore. I think for me, they I have to give people enough prompts and opportunities to reflect and in those public settings really think about action. Now remember I tend to do workshops where it's an organization coming together it's not like 350 random people typically. And so we really get focused on what are the strategies within this school or organization? What are the barriers that are unique to this school and organization and how can we start to detangle or dismantle some of the structures together because we're all here together? It ends up being, I I always say to people, like, grab your notebook and title it action items, things to do or next steps, whatever you want to call it. And by the time we're done with the workshop, they have developed their list. 
And I remind them that with 300 people in the room, there are 300 versions of the to-do items based on your identity, your experiences, what you care about, the lens that you bring into this work. And some of that, like I mentioned, is sparked by those feelings of guilt and anger and frustration and acknowledgement. But really, I, I need people to stop sitting there, right? I always say like guilt is this feeling that we have. It's this feeling that's either temporary or stable, but those are feelings like your sadness, the sadness that I had, that was a feeling that I had. And so it's, you have to move this to action. So guilt, I think for me, is an invitation to do something better right? Guilt is an invitation to do something better. And so I really have used some of those pain moments that I've done myself to say, well, what am I supposed to do about this? Based on this experience, what's my next step? So I will just say, I know, like I said, I think there are still facilitators who do kind of the pain on display work. I think sometimes it's just about their experience, what they're comfortable with. They tend to replicate what they know. And I, knowing that you have a a diverse audience that listens to your podcast, I would just ask people who do the pain on display technique to really think about what kind of vulnerability you're creating in the room. And is that vulnerability a taxation to those most marginalized for the benefit of those in power? And if that is, you have to rethink your process. You have to rethink your method. You're just re-traumatizing marginalized people. And I think there's a good way to do DEIJ work without marginalizing um, and taxing people of color or other marginalized identities in particular. Finger snaps all around, all around. I mean, do you see that? You two tell me, like, what are you seeing in the field? Yeah. Alexis? Um, I mean, I was going to say that I know some of those, some of those hard ones, those paint on display type things are definitely still happening. Cause like, I I don't know if it was quite for the paint on display reason, but like one of my friends was like, yeah, I have stopped going to DEI trainings at my company, even though everyone assumed that I would want to go to these workshops because I'm black, my friend was saying, you know, but they were like, but when I go, it's just so much work that's being put on me. And it's like, I got other things to do. And I deal with this all the time. The rest of y'all need to be doing this work, not me, you know, because she's got enough shit going on. I know it's still out there. It is still out there. What about you, Lynette? Do you, I mean, obviously you travel around a lot. You do a lot of consultancy with this work. Like, what are you seeing in terms of method and process for people who are doing DEIJ or anti-racism training. You know, that's interesting. And I, I have a, a question for later on DEIJ. Um, but first I have to say, yeah, I think whenever we talk about our our motto right now, which I'm, I'm actually in my brain have been reevaluating over the last few months of like, is that really the central motto of 0% guilt trip, 100% empowerment? Like that's our approach in workshops. So very similarly, When we're in groups with mixed audiences, the goal isn't to dwell on the guilt. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have, there isn't a space for that. That's not like a valid feeling or isn't part of something that can and should be processed. It's like in our workshops, in the, in the programs that we do, we center on action. Like what is something you can do today? What is something you can do in five seconds? What's something you can do in 10 seconds? What's something that you can practice on for a few minutes now, a few minutes next time? What's something, you know, what is an action you can take that is like manageable? You can do it and you feel like, yes, I can definitely do it. 
and I know, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I know how to do it. Like that's, that's really important. Like one, one important part of what, of what we do. Um, and so yes, uh, guilt, <laughs> the guilt part, uh, public pain is, is still something that happens. I just, you know, when Kat and I first started, so Kat's, Kat's our, our co-founder, when Kat and I first started UBP, we, we wanted it to be engaging and like, you know, thinking about, you know, talking about DEI training and DIJ or, you know, whatever programming and all, all this other stuff, it's, it has evolved not just because of the culture and context, but because of research, you know, so the same way that teaching has evolved over time and, you know, people are doing flipped classroom experiences, you know, hands-on learning, you know, um, all sorts of different methods of, of, of helping people learn and apply concepts. We infused that in how we thought about what we wanted our talks and our workshops and our programs to be like. In like, wouldn't it be awesome if you left a workshop on this feeling excited, like you felt empowered, you felt like, hey, I have agency. Like, yeah, okay, this society is this way, history is this way, structural inequities, like, et cetera, et cetera, my privilege, you know, why, what, whatever, X and Y thing. And I have agency and I have allies and, you know, like, but like, I, and I can still do something about it. So that, that's, that's what I, that's how, how we think about it, or at least I think about it. And I've, I've tried to infuse that in, in our work. Um, and the other thing that was interesting is I love the sheer cornucopia that's out there of DI facilitation. I mean, we, we definitely <laughs> threw a little shade on some of the techniques that, that we don't love that, you know, maybe probably, you know, actually work for some people. Maybe they need some of that um, to, as you were saying, as a motivation, as a way to get them from turning to setting into action. But um, I, um, I have a, a friend uh, at Improv Science um, also uh, a professor who uh, turned to improv theater to help people think outside of the like box with respect to race, right? I um, have a friend who uh, developed a card game, Your Privilege is Showing, as like a way to, you know, help people have conversations on privilege and race and sort of like, you know, create containers with each other. Um, we just actually recorded earlier today with your friend, <laughs> Enrico Manalo, um, on like facilitating discussions, like the, like really thinking deeply on conversations and conflict management, conflict resolution as like, you know, different frameworks to apply to this work. Um, I have another friend, so they took design thinking framework, which has, you know, been based on very, you know, white cis men, you know, creating design thinking basically and, you know, perpetuating the the same issues that we have in society through design thinking. And they just like went and like, you know, screw it. We're going to redesign design thinking so it can actually take in diverse experiences. So we're actually working like in partnership, not in, hey, give me your your input and then I'm going to ignore it because I know better. It's like, we're going to work in partnership on this and it's not going to be the right solution until the, the community that's impacted and all the stakeholders are involved in the process and it has like reflection and probing, you know? And so like, I love that there are so many different, oh, and I have my friend um, at Invisible Paradigms, 
uh, who centers, like she focuses specifically on white women that want to be allies and she helps them explore identity and privilege and their part and everything. And, you know, just all of these different pieces. And she goes like super deep with them over like eight weeks. Um, so I just, yeah, I love that there's so many different approaches out there. That that's that's the part that excites me. I do have to say, as Black Lives Matter sort of precipitated an explosion of new um, people in the field, I do think they're, unfortunately, you know, it's not like we have, I don't know, standards of practice or anything. <laughs> um, so there, there's, there's probably, you know, not great trainings out there that are only checking boxes still, or, you know, just sort of like triggering additional harm, unfortunately, or, you know, like not taking into account the context, right? You mentioned context. We, we work a lot with that, like the context of organizations um, and what their like specific, you know, cultural thing they have going on and don't have going on are. Um, so, so I think, you know, there's a lot out there. I think it's, it's, um, it's really exciting to, to talk with other people that have a similar approach, but it's also really exciting to hear from, from some of these folks that are, oh, Beitna Design, that's what it's called, B-E-Y-T-N-A, Beitna Design, um, that are just kind of like looking at what's the status quo and being like, no, you know what? Like, yeah, we tried that. You know, even, even you saying like, yeah, you know, I started with the guilt thing and, and, you know, public pain. And, and I realized like, yeah, yeah, that's not really serving my purpose like my greater purpose. Um, and I think that's, that's great. That's great to hear. It's part of, it's part of this process, right? Like we, we learn, we change and, and, and hopefully with, with all of us, um, trying different ways of, of going about it, um, you know, we can, we can start making change, like making real change. Right. And I think that's a great point. And I thank you for like kind of clarifying and amplifying that too. I really appreciate and learned so much from people who are doing it a little bit differently from me. So, I mean, you know, when I think about kind of the cohort that I run with, there are folks who incorporate a lot of music into what they do. They're musicians by training and by passion. And so their workshops, yeah, their DEIJ workshops are really music driven. Um, they incorporate a, like, a lot of music themes, regardless of their their audience. I probably tend to do a mix of kind of what I think is appropriate humor but like a humor and um, <laughs> some academic stuff. Like, I feel like I, I'm really mindful of throwing in like academic, theoretical, practical classroom leadership, like tools. I guess if someone were to, I guess if someone were to summarize my workshop, they would say, I walked away with a lot of tools, right? I would hope people would say I walked away with a lot of tools um, because kind of the theater space is very outside my comfort zone. Like, I'll be honest, the minute someone says, we're going to do role plays, and I'm like, one of us isn't. <laughs> like, I just, I'm not good. I'm like, I have every strange reaction to it. Um, and to be honest, I incorporate them in my own workshop as well. But I really love, um, I mean, obviously we haven't been in person in so long, but I really loved going to see people doing some of these um, like kind of de diversity, equity, inclusion scenarios and then talkbacks. Again, not my comfort zone not something I would do. But and it was it was always so interesting for me as a facilitator, just to watch how other things are happening. Um, 
And then, you know, obviously, like I did a um, documentary film with Point Made Productions called I'm Not Racist, Am I? Some of that spun off into like a digital game, a board game. And I've actually facilitated the board game a couple of times, which it just connects to a different type of person. So I really like that. Yeah, people have different things that they need to connect to. And again, I do know that there are some people who need to tap into the pain space because they are so moved by heart. And that's just kind of where they need to be motivated is through that kind of heart pain space. So I'm not like totally dismissing it. It's just not the thing that makes me feel that comfortable anymore as a facilitator. But it's also why I tell organizations, don't just hire me, right? Like make sure that when you're hiring people, you're speaking to different learning styles as well. And so if you're creating a year long curriculum, not just 45 minutes, But if you're creating a strategy, (laughs) right, a scaffolding, make sure that there's something kind of like academic, practical, experiential, like hit all of like body kinesthetic, like hit all of these different pieces in there. Um, And I would say, because you're right, Lynette, I think um, I think there was such an increase in people who called themselves kind of DEI consultants. I think with good intention, right? They were really upset, frustrated, mad, angry by what they were seeing with injustice in the world and locally. And they were like, I got to do something about this. Like I am really compelled to do something about it. And part of that do something was to become trainers. And I, all the props, because that's, I was one of them 25 years ago. And right. I'll say yes. And um, it is one of those fields where I think people believe that just because they care about it, they can be affected trainers right we were kind of joking let's bring the teeth back in like just because I brush my teeth doesn't make me a dentist and I just want people to be mindful that this work like the three of us especially we have put in decades of training and education and skill and in different ways the three of us hold marginalized and privileged identities but um I just want people to remember, yes, absolutely give folks a chance, give them a break, like let them shine, let them get in there. But this isn't just a field that you can walk into. People do train like their lives for this. Um, and I'm grateful for a lot of collaboration. You know, again, you, the two of you in, a, in an organization that does this work, you could always say, oh my gosh, we are not going to interview other consultants. Why would we do that? Why would we promo other people? But that's really not what the field is, right? It's like, (laughs) I always want to work with people who are interested in collaborating and uplifting because I will say there are folks who kind of want to be the only one in the barrel. And I just, that's Mm -hmm. not, I just don't feel like that's the kind of people that I roll with, you know? So grateful to be in collaboration and in this space with the two of you in particular. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're super grateful for it too. (laughs) And yeah, I, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, just like, you know, there, there are so many people who I feel like as educators, right. We see this all the time with people who are like, oh yeah, I was an engineer for, you know, 20 years. So I wanted to, you know, quote unquote, take a break. Um, and teach for five years. Um, cause I figured, you know, that'll be easy. And it's like, and then they get into the classroom and suddenly they're like, wait, teaching is a whole other skill. And it's like, yes. And, you know, I'll go to, I'll go to do things that are outside. You know, I was a Latin teacher, right? 
and I'll go to teach fire spinning or something like that. And people afterwards will be like, that was a really good class. Have you been teaching? Have you, or have you been teaching fire spinning for, you know, X number of years? And I'm like, uh, I just put together this workshop like last weekend, but the skill of teaching is transferable to different subjects. And likewise, right. Just because you care about DEI does not necessarily mean, mean that you have that additional skill and knowledge base for more for the, for the education. There's a story about, you know, this renowned artist um, and, you know, this person like asked them for a drawing of a crane, like I want a drawing of a crane and you have to do it. And they're like, okay, it's, you know, however much, like a lot of money. And they're like, and it's like three weeks later and they come by, it's like, where's my drawing? And they take like 10 seconds to do it. And okay. Y'all know, y'all know it then. Okay. Can you, can you say what it actually is? Cause (laughs) my brain isn't catching on to what, what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I'm happy to because honestly, I've, I, I I have to say this to people all the time. So right to stay with your metaphor, I think I thought it was a painting. But anyway, some sort of artistic thing yeah. um, where the person is like, so the person says like, all right, that's like $200. And the person's like $200. That took you 10 minutes to make it. And they're like, yeah, but it took me 20 years to prepare it. Or exactly. like something like that, something yeah. like that, right? Like 20 years to prepare my skill to yeah. do this in 10 seconds or something. Mm-hmm, I'm also mm-hmm. messing up the analogy, but I have to be honest. I get that too. So mm-hmm. to be very transparent folks, like I do charge a, quite a bit of money for the work that I do. And I feel very confident saying that because one, I have put in 25 years of experience Two, like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good at it. Right. And so sometimes people say like, Oh my gosh, that's so expensive. It's only an hour. And I'm like, you're welcome to hire somebody else who does not have this much experience. And they could be amazing or you're going to call me to fix it. It's Mm -hmm. like with fire performance or theater performance or any other type of performance, right? You already made the analogy to performance, right? This is a type of performance. And it's like, yeah, you go to see this hour long performance, theater performance or, you know, fire spinning show or whatever it is. And it's like, you're not just paying for that hour. You're also paying for the weeks and months of preparation. You're paying for, you know, in the case of theater, oftentimes their college that they had to go to in order to get that training, right? You're paying for so much more than just the part you see. Yeah, so very true. I know. And again, there are definitely amazing people who are early in their career and they're superstars. But I think for the most part, those are pretty rare. The ones who I'm like, oh my gosh, I learned so much. This person's incredible. It's because they put in the work. Mm -hmm. Um, They've put in the time, they put in the training, they've kind of gotten all their theoretical frameworks. Like they've really figured it out. The other thing I say to organizations is, you know, with 25 years in the work, there's very little that I haven't seen at this point. There's almost no question as ridiculous as the question might seem that I haven't already heard. I mean, I just, I can't even think of one where I was like, wow, I've never heard that before. And so part of what they're paying for is my experience and ability to manage just about anything. Whereas earlier in my career, which I did not charge as much earlier in my career, I was stumped every day, right? I was like, ooh, I don't know what to do with this one, right? And I just feel like what you're paying for, especially when we talk about DEIJ, anti-racism, critical race theory, like you want someone who's been tested, who's seen it all, who's done it all, who's kind of not going to get stumped. And so part of that comes with a cost these days. So it's taken me a while to feel confident about what I charge. I still, there are plenty of people who still charge way more than I do. 
And um, it's what I'm comfortable with and I'm sticking with it. I'm sticking by. (laughs) That's our philosophy too on that. It is time that we need to take a break. So we're going to listen to a couple of announcements from Seth and then we'll be right back. We'd like to give a big shout out to Boomerang who helps nonprofits interface productively with their donor base. They're sponsoring the next season of the UBP podcast and we're grateful for their generous support. We'd also like to thank Cielo and Boomerang for sponsoring our Be a Better Imposter event and UBP at Cal for sponsoring Stop AAPI Hate and Activate event, both from our Breaking Bread and Bias outreach campaign that just concluded. To learn more about the outreach campaign, watch recordings, and download resources, check them out on our website at ubproject.org slash resources and click on the events category. Make sure to sign up for the UBP newsletter at ubproject.org if you haven't already, so you can keep up with the latest news and get informed about the latest releases. Hi everyone, this is Seth and I am one of the audio editors and volunteers here at UBP. The Unconscious Bias Project brings creative, accessible, evidence-based solutions for unintentional bias to academic, technological, governmental organizations, and beyond. We sustain a welcoming home for inquisitive and creative minds and encourage a growth mindset, working by the model of 0% guilt, 100% empowerment. Please subscribe or follow our Facebook and Instagram for the latest in events and how you can learn more and be involved. Also, take a look and check out our guest website and learn more. Look for that information in the description section of your podcast or on our website. This episode is brought to you by an ally of the podcast, Bloomerang, the donor database trusted by tens of thousands of fundraisers. For donor management, email marketing, online giving, and more, Bloomerang has you covered. Beyond helping fundraisers enhance their donor relationships, Bloomerang is committed to elevating the voices of BIPOC nonprofit professionals. To learn more about contributing to our blog, visit bloomerang.co slash blog slash write. Before break, we were talking about trainings and things like that, um, a whole bunch of stuff. But right now, I want to ask about before we recorded the podcast, we were talking about the pandemic and toxic workplaces. And we are about to go back to our workplaces, some of which may be toxic. Dun, so, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was a good, that was a good as, Alexis. as we look as we look hopefully you know looking forward to returning to the workplaces where we get to have our connections with our colleagues um how would you liza define a toxic workplace for our listeners and why it's so important to pay attention to those workplaces and the ways in which they may be toxic well, funny you should ask, Alexis. I've never worked in a place that was toxic. Kidding. <laughs> so many examples. I might be like, oh gosh, where do I even start uh, to finding this? Same. <laughs> same. I mean, so like, okay, so I'll just kind of pick a place and then we'll keep going. So I think one, I'll speak for myself as a person of color. Um, I tend to work in predominantly white workspaces. And um, the toxic part for me was uh, dealing with kind of unchecked racism micro and macro aggressions. I was always like one of the few Asian people. So 
Ugh, just like Asian, anti-Asian stereotypes and comments. So for me, this I described toxic in that scenario where I was just always having to either play small or play white. Can we really talk about that? Where I just had to play white. Now, for those of you who are listening, I am super not white. Like I have dark brown skin, I have black super hair. Not like, white. <laughs> I'm like super not white. Like you can't, when I say things like I play white, like we're just being really ridiculous here. Um, so I just, yeah, I just had to really play down my entire identity. And so I think for me, that was really toxic, right? I had to, we, we use the term code switch, right? I had to code switch all the time. Um, I live in a home of color. My partner, my children are people of color. My family is of color. And so Every time I would go to this workplace, there was always something that I was leaving behind about me. So Mm. I think from this personal identity perspective, that's toxic. For me, as someone who cares deeply and who does the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, and I actually just recorded a um, webinar with my dear friend, Dr. Keith Hinderley, who's also a consultant, and we did a workshop called Red Flags for DEI Practitioners. And in these red flags, yes, and I do think we should have had the dun-dun-dun kind of thing in our workshop as well. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. But it was all these like, ooh, careful, right? If you see this, careful. And so some of that toxic and I'll say traumatic too, right? Toxically and traumatic had to do a lot with being gaslit as a person of color or being told you are ridiculous Mm. or Mm. this isn't happening, right? Putting kind of gas on that fire. Um, I will say as a DEIJ professional, literally my job description was to disrupt the status quo, right? So address racism, create strategies for greater equity, blah, 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 blah. That is what you are paying me to do, except you don't actually want me to do it, right? Because the minute I was doing it, the language of, ooh, she goes too far too fast. Ooh, she doesn't know our culture. Ooh, right? Like she's just causing waves. I was told by someone in my workplace, this is I was up just, so much for me. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> As a DEIJ practitioner, someone had told me, you know, you really need to smile more when you talk about racism. No. It just it's very off putting. Now, again, for those of you who don't know me, if you've seen me on a webinar, I smile like crazy just anyway. And I'm like, oh, I need to do more. Like, how do you do more? And also, why should I have to smile during racism? So I think for me, that toxic piece was also, oh, you all invited me to do a job that you pay me a salary for. And when I do it, you just attack me every time. So for me, that was another aspect of toxic. And then I'll just mention this third one, which again, I I see not just for DEIJ practitioners, but people who are really passionate about unconscious bias and engaging in, you know, um, more equity work. Uh, I was always told as I was advocating for those, particularly of identities that I didn't have. So I was advocating for students experiencing homelessness. I was advocating for students who were experiencing food insecurity, two things of which I did not identify with. And I was told, um, you know, Liza, you've really got to pace yourself. You're going to really burn out. You can't pay attention to everything. In the meantime, I knew that there was a student going home hungry. Right. I knew there was a student whose family was living in a shelter. And I was like, so should I tell them that I should I tell those two students that I should slow down? Like, what do you think? Should I should I let them know I'll put them in line until I'm done? Like, so I think the toxicity um, was for me being told that the good work was just too good. Like, stop it. And that's when I knew I heard someone say, 
um, you know, they're working in a toxic work environment and they know that because it's a place that's stealing their spirit. And I was like, yeah, that's another way to describe it, right? A place that is just stealing, not even your light, because I've heard someone say that before, right? It's stealing my light. But someone who's like, oh, this place is really stealing my spirit. If I can hearken back to something that you just said a couple of minutes ago, like that thing about leaving part of yourself at home is so real in those toxic workspaces. It's like, there's, you know, with regards to my experience being queer, like there's definitely still this like vestigial, it's not my problem what you do in the bedroom type mentality, right? Like, but don't, do you need to do it in front of us? Like that mentality is still there. And it's like, yeah, we want, we want you to feel comfortable being trans, but please don't be queer around us. Like, oh, that's like, you're making folks uncomfortable with your constant questioning of the gender binary. Like, that's what I do by my very like presentation. You're going to have to deal with that if you want me. One of those toxic workplace signs is when people want the people to be there, be part of their numbers, but not actually to like be there, be there. When social justice started like trending, um, sort of like bringing, bringing these pieces about toxic workplaces, identity, social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, anti-racism, you know, all of these different terms. I, I started wondering, and people were like, why don't you call yourself, you know, there's like a bunch of different acronyms, JEDI, DIB, DIA, D, you know, like so many, IDEA, like there's just so many different versions. And, and, and I want to know, because I felt, I felt like there is no way I could do justice. Like I cannot guarantee I can create social justice change in an organization through a one hour workshop. We can't say that we do that. That just doesn't, that doesn't resonate for me. And so I wonder, I want to know, like, how do you see the justice component in the work you do in disrupting toxic workplaces? Like, how do you bring the justice piece into your work? And how do we bring that into, into breaking up um, toxic workplaces? I actually don't call myself a DEIJ facilitator. So even when Alexis was reading my bio, right, it was like Dr. Toulousin is an educator, strategic change partner, leader, writer, leadership hope, and parent, right? Like nowhere in there is DEIJ. Only a little bit later is, or do you learn like how I do those things? So I educate, I engage in strategic partnership, I lead, I coach through difficult conversations about diversity, anti-racism, bias, and privilege and power. Right. So I really focus on those other pieces, educating, strategic change, leading, right, coaching and parenting and writing. And I do it through the lens of DEIJ work, as which is opposed to saying I am a DEIJ facilitator or educator and I do all these other things. I don't know why that makes a difference for me, but it it feels so clear to me in my head about what that is. And I think for me it's also that. Those other pieces, educating, strategic change partner, those are fundamental to organizational practices. And so when I say, and I do all of those things, which are fundamental to organizational practices, but heck, we're going to do it through a DEIJ lens. Like I'm not, I can't talk about leadership without talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. My students in my master's program and in the doc program, the official title of the class is educational leadership skills. And I literally, in both of those classes, greet them like, hi, I'm Dr. Toulousin. I'm your faculty member. Education is racist AF. 
And here we go. <laughs> and they're like, I think yes. I'm in the wrong class. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, you are definitely in the right class. I had a student not too long ago say, oh, you know, because I was describing it, like we're learning how to be educational leaders. And um, a person had said, I think this might not be the right class for me. I've been a leader for eight years. It sounds like this is really a class for new leaders. And I was like, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how much of those eight years have been focused on anti-racism? And they're like, well, not yeah. really. And I'm like, so it sounds like you need this class. <laughs> like, sounds like you've been leading improperly. Sorry. Right. Um, and then, you know, and then just so you know, all the teachers, we smooth it over later. But my point is like, if you are doing leadership without anti-racism, like you're not doing leadership. What is that? You know what it is? It's white leadership. So I'm not interested in perpetuating white leadership. So, um, so I would say that's kind of like that first thing that leads me to my answer, my very long and winded answer to justice, Lynette. Perfect. I perfect. am super grateful for the academic and theoretical labor of a scholar named Dr. D.L. Stewart. And he, in 2016, 2017, wrote an article called The Language of Appeasement. And I know we'll probably put that in the podcast notes or something like that. For any of you who are listening to this podcast and you're looking for like something to read or tips or whatever, um, Dr. Stewart's article, The Language of Appeasement, is a very quick read in which he defines accurately diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice. And I use his article as a foundation for a lot of my workshops because then I say, all right, the clarity of definition leads us to clarity of conversation, which leads us to clarity of action. So the definition that Dr. Stewart gives us related to justice, and I'm paraphrasing just a little bit here, is that justice is examining what are the conditions that leave people out? What are the conditions that have sacrificed or minimized other people's safety? Who gets to decide who belongs? Like all these really intense questions. So I then ask organizations, what do you believe are the action items that are connected to the decisions that we make that allow people to perpetuate dehumanizing views? So I'll often hear things like, well, if we do this, if we do something on Black Lives Matter, then we also have to do something on Blue Lives Matter. And I'm like, no, you don't actually, right? Those are two, those are actually not connected. So I, sometimes like people engage in injustice when they try to do what we call this balanced point of view. And my thing is one of those causes great psychological and emotional harm. And the other one focuses on the human rights of others. It's like, <laughs> and we so, don't, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't go like, well, it's time to learn about this or we shouldn't anyway. I know there are probably, you know, places that do. I know that there are places that do talk about, you know, well, let's talk about slavery, which is bad, but also right. let's hear from the other side. Ooh, right. And it's that says that like it's our Christian mission to enslave black people. Like, no, we don't equate those two. And it's like and and I I feel this frustration because oftentimes because I'm like the only difference is that right now you're inside the debate, but it is as clear that one of these is like just not comparable to the other right it's the like don't meet nazis halfway like if you're if you meet nazis halfway you're still going closer to being a nazi don't do it 
Right. Yeah. And so justice, I think, Thalita, to your question, like justice requires us to confront those very difficult conversations and to really examine the structures that even allows us to ask the question, well, what was good about slavery? Right. Like what are the actual conditions and structures that even give us permission or give us this pathway to ask that question? Like there was nothing good about slavery. Right. And so to even put that into the fold is really problematic. You know, um, Alexis, you and I both worked at independent schools, and I often ask independent schools, which are this private selective, right, places, like, is it even possible to do justice work in schools that were literally built for exclusion? Like, is it even possible? And I ask, I ask independent schools that question, honestly, I'm not even trying to be provocative. Like you all talk about your anti-racist missions and your your commitment to justice, but is it even possible? Like, is it even possible based on how you're built and your foundings? Like you were founded to segregate that and we continue to do it today, right? We continue it today. Um, And so people were like, well, what are you saying, Liza, that we shouldn't do justice work? And I'm like, well, one, let's be honest about is it even possible? And two, I'm not saying you shouldn't teach it. You should absolutely teach justice. So maybe we are now inspiring younger people or even creative folks to think about like, how do we begin to disrupt it? One of the things that Stuart gives us in the article is one way to engage in or achieve justice is to put decision-making in the hands of those most marginalized, which is not how hierarchical organizations work, right? Decision-making is at the top. And so what does it mean for to actually believe in the agency when I think about, right, 100% empowerment? What does it mean to actually turn agency over to those most impacted? That's justice work. It requires a deep sense of humility It requires a deep sense of individual and organizational trust. It requires a deep sense of individual and organizational risk-taking. And I think right now in 2020, 2021, people are primed to do that. I worry that the further that we get away from ongoing racial injustice and the global pandemic, that we will revert right back to white norms, white perfectionism, right, white systems. And um, that's one of my greatest fears. I think it's why I keep showing up to do this work because we it's it's not helpful for us to move backwards. And we know this country. We have um, <laughs> we've moved backwards in many ways. And this is one of those hills that I just won't give up on. I feel like we have so much left to talk about. Um, so just so y'all know, we're in for a real treat. Um, Eliza is is such a badass, so amazing and so generous um, yes. with her knowledge and her sheer like amount of, I don't know, expertise, energy, vibe, everything. Um, we're going to record a second podcast. But before um, we end this one, I want to pose one last question. How can people be good troublemakers or allies? Ooh, can I take this? I love this question. So good. <laughs> yes. You I are. love this question because this is like what I've been trying to tell people. So I'll speak from the I perspective. I, in a couple of workplaces, toxic work environments, I needed people to be good troublemakers and allies. And maybe they thought mm-hmm. they were. I think there's people, if they listen to your podcast, would be like, oh, lies. I was so one of them. 
No, you were not. <laughs> if I didn't tell you, you weren't, because I told everybody who was good to me, you were uh-huh. good to me. You were good to me. Oh, yeah. So if you didn't get the you were good to me text, mm-mm, you have some work to do. So uh, here's what I wish had happened. So if you are listening to this podcast and you know someone is going through something toxic, traumatic, do this. <laughs> so I would say the first thing I definitely needed from people who are good troublemakers was just to even acknowledge that I was going through something like y'all knew I was going through something. And some people chose to turn to me and be like, I see you, right? I see you. I see what's happening here. And there were other people who were like, you know what? I'm just going to look the other way because I'm not trying to get in trouble either. Like, I still need to have these people like me. So mm-mm, not doing that. And then, folks, I'm not talking about like middle schoolers. I'm talking about grown people who did this to me. So one, like acknowledge and validate the actual existence of a person who might be feeling that traumatic or toxic experience. One. Go ahead, folks, write that down. Acknowledge and bet. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> like, but that's really like, uh, to be honest, that's what I needed. I needed someone just to be like, oh, I see you. Yeah, this is bad. I got you. All right. Cause the second piece is the I got you. So everybody is going to determine what their I got you is, right? So, like, I know there are some people I can call who will literally be like, what plane, what airport should I fly into? How fast will it take me to take my earrings off? Like, what do you need to me to do for you? And so there are people who I know are just down, right? They're down. They will ride. If I say jump, they will jump type of thing. There are other people who do need a little bit of direction. And I've got to be honest. I think there were people who I did say, here's what I need from you, right? We're about to go into this meeting together. And I know that I'm about to get attacked, gaslit, whatever. And I just can't do it. So here's here. Let me slip you this paper. Here's the phrases I need you to say. And so if you really want to be a troublemaker and ally, you really want to ride or die with this person. Like you need to say the things because I will say I have slipped that paper to some people. And the meeting happened. And then I was like, dude, what? Like I even gave you. They're like, oh, I forgot. No, oh, it didn't seem a good. To- oh, what? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I forgot. Or they're like, oh, yeah, it just didn't seem like the right time. And I'm like, yeah, that was the whole idea. There's never a right time. They're never going to give you space. Just you had to say them. So I would say if your person is generous enough to give you kind of a script or things to say, oh, my gosh, say it. And then the other thing, <laughs> the other thing is um, acknowledge when you have the privilege to not be risky. So I had a a colleague who she really had nothing to risk. I mean, this was not risky. And when I asked her to just stick up for me, she had said, well, Liza, I've got like, you know, a kid going to college, like I can't afford to lose my job. And my thing was, oh my gosh, you are not going to get fired. They're not going to fire you white woman who's worked here for 20 years. Like it's just not going to happen. So you actually, this risk that you think you're carrying is not real, but Of course, I was like, let go soon after. So I think, you know, to be a good troublemaker or ally, really examine how true is this risk that I'm identifying that's keeping me from being a good ally or troublemaker. Those are my three. I'm sure the two of you have like a list of good tips for people as well. I would, I I got my pen ready and I am ready to take notes on what the two of you have for people. I was going to say just on that third point, like one of the things that we definitely directly talk about in our workshops is that like being an ally means sharing risk. We're very clear about it. Like if you're not taking on any of that risk by speaking up, then you're just letting other people out to dry. What we normally do 
is within this is like, have a conversation. It's not. So when we, when I talk about it to people, they're like, yes, I'm an ally. I have a pin. I put the thing on my Facebook profile. Like I'm such an ally. I'm so, I'm super allied to the rescue. Gonna like, you know, I don't know, interrupt racism in its tracks. Pow. And it's like, that is not allyship. It's great for you to go vote. It's great for you to go, you know, amplify voices. It's great for you to like believe, you know, a person with a disability, you know, whatever, you know, marginalized group when they ask you for something. But like allyship means you need to have a conversation with that person. They need to say like, this is when you can step in and help me. These are the things like you were talking about. I I love that. We talk about that. Like here is like, I always get interrupted at this meeting. I need you to say, hey, I want to hear what Alexis has to say. I want to hear what Lynette had to say. Um, I need you just to do that. And then you do it. And it, but it has to be a conversation because maybe it could be a situation where they're like, I've got, I got it. I got it. I'm fine. Right. Like if you have any sort of identity that has ever been oppressed, repressed, marginalized, you can't speak up for yourself. It's that we're doing this so much. It takes so much energy all the fucking time. It's not just one-on-ones. It's in the media. It's in how people talk about like a culture, an entire country. You know, It's just all the fucking time. And so active allyship is like, like you said, I see you as a person. I see what's happening. I believe you. And what can I do? Yeah, like take off your earrings, get ready. Like I'll hold them, you punch. Like that, <laughs> like that, that's, what, that's where you, you, you have to be ready to, to be. It's not just, I wear, I bought a Black Lives Matter shirt. It's, are you, are you ready to, to listen to, you know, the protest leader and follow their instructions? Are you ready to, you know, also speak up at the board meeting? Are you also ready to maybe leave your seat so you can make another seat? Like that, that is allyship. That's troublemaking. You know, that's, that's the level you have to go to. Um, but no, I love, I love your three, your three bits. I think they, they're super beautiful. Um, and I think that's a great place for us to go to our shout out. So I know we'll have more in the next um, episode we record, but, um, and you, you've uh, mentioned uh, your uh, fellow consultant, uh, Hinderly and Stuart, uh, the red flag webinar that you, you mentioned also, which uh, we'll definitely link to. Do you have any shout outs that you want to give either, you know, projects that you have coming up that you'd like uh, folks to tune into or, uh, you know, like kudos to somebody or a group or a book that people should read or, you know, something they should check out? Yeah, I love that. Thanks for building in this nice shout out piece. I mean, obvious shout outs to the two of you for creating space for this conversation. And I am so taking you up on a part two. This was just great. I mean, again, it was so nice for me to be able to toss questions over to you and for you to amplify the work of Unconscious Bias Project and your own narratives and experiences. So huge shout out. Sometimes people don't know behind the scenes, but there are people who edit a lot of the work sh- of the podcast as well. So shout out to people behind the scenes as well. And then I would just say, okay, hello, amazingly shameless plug. So my book is coming out in January. Finally, after what? a few years, y'all know how long it takes for like books to get published. What? 
been like two years. Um, so the book that I uh, that is in publication right now, again, it should be launching in January, is incredibly practical. So for those of you who are looking for real tools to implement in your organizations, um, be on the lookout. We'll send an announcement through all of our socials about that book, but we believe it's being published in January. So that's my big shout out and shout out to the production team there as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah, definitely let us know. We're happy to amplify that. And I can't wait to get a copy. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh, well, Real. thank you so much, Liza. This was a blast. This is like the best way to end Friday <laughs> for me. Yes. That's, that was amazing. Oh, yes. thank you Always so great to talk with you again, Liza. Thanks for listening. You can find more information and donate at unconsciousbiasproject.org. Dr. Lynette Mara, she, her, and Alexis Crone, she, her, are your host. Seth Beckman, he, they, is your editor. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and follow us. We can be found on Facebook at Unconscious Bias Project, Twitter at UBP underscore STEM, LinkedIn, Instagram, or join our mailing list. UBP is a fiscally sponsored project of the Social Good Fund, a tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you wish to sponsor us, please contact us in the Contact Us tab at unconsciousbiasproject.org.